Well, good evening. We are so glad that you're here. So we've got, a, if you've never been here to the mine, um, and this is your first time, this is the way we kind of work, is we have a couple of microphones here, and all you need to do if you want to make a comment, ask a question, agree, disagree, is to raise your hand, and we'll try to get to you as best as we possibly can. With this size of a crowd tonight, we have to realize that some of us just won't get our questions answered, but rather than me launch into a 20-minute dissertation to begin with, we're just going to start with the questions, and so if you already have a question about Mormonism, about something that confuses you about Mormonism, if you have a question about the differences between Christianity and Mormonism, if you want something that, uh, that was said on Sunday morning clarified, um, any which way, um, just raise your hand and why don't you go ahead and fact, in fact, why don't we just do that now? If you can think of something, that way the guys with the mics can get to you right now. And as you're doing that then, uh, again, let me... Um, begin by just just the introduction um you know we thought you know who could we i mean who would do a a good job at at helping us out here and uh and you know where could we go with this and so um we asked jeff to come and uh jeff is part of a, a church as well as a ministry um called apologia and jeff has spent the past 15 years or so um not just learning about uh his faith, but also learning about the Latter-day Saints and their faith and, and, you know, what are the similarities, but what are the differences? The reason this matters, I think, gang, is because two months ago I got a call. I teach, uh, my name is Greg Tonkinson, by the way, if, if, uh, if this is your first time, and, and I teach, uh, I'm, I'm just a guy who loves Jesus, and they've allowed me to, to grab a mic every week and come and, and hang out with you guys, and, and, uh, and I teach over at Valley Christian High School, and two months ago I got a call from an aunt and said, hey, I I just need to let you know my niece, who was a graduate from our high school, um, is not only dating a guy that, that is a, uh, from LDS, but she's now converted. And she is a full-fledged, got baptized, and is full-fledged LDS. And I could hear when this aunt was explaining this to me, just the, uh, the sorrow and the, the sadness in her heart. And so we talked, and I gave her some references, and, and gave her some information, and I said, you know, is there anything else I could do? And so, uh, you know, some future conversations hopefully will ensue between myself and this, my former student, whom I love to death and great, great kid. But guys, if it's just a matter of some small differences, you know, they call a church a a ward, we call it a church. Um, They have volunteers who speak on Sundays, we have paid, you know, if it's just minor differences, color of the carpet, uh, you know, traditional versus modern worship, we're not having this conversation. We're not having this kind of crowd tonight. So, so there's got to be something more than that than just, well, it's just a different flavor of the same thing. We're all going to the same place and they're just taking a, a, a little different path than you and I are. And then we're not having this conversation. So there's got to be something else to this situation, this, this, this idea that while there may be some similarities, are there some differences big enough that cause us to gather in a meeting house like this and say, well, what are they? And, 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 and I think Jeff and I are both of the, of the persuasion that there are, um, obviously. Uh, and, so, and so I don't know why you came tonight. Um, our goal is not to, it's not uh, us versus them, it's not a ganging up. My heart, guys, honestly, is that we could inform you with maybe a few things we've been through or maybe a few answers that we might have. 
so that that conversation that will happen maybe to a, a future niece that's struggling with this, maybe, maybe that conversation with a neighbor who is investigating. I remember the first time I planted a church back in the 90s and the first person I baptized in our church was someone that came out of, out of the uh, Mormon faith and, and it was exciting and invigorating. But it led me to this path of, well, what are the differences? Um, because, because if there are differences, here's the bottom line, guys. If there are differences, we both can't be right. If there are differences on anything, we both could be wrong, as I've said many times, but we both can't be right. And so if there are differences, we need to figure them out and decide which side are you going to align yourself with. Our, our goal tonight, I know Jeff's, my, our goal is not to have you leave um, with, with a full-fledged changed heart and now, you're, now you know everything, but rather maybe if the conversation can start here, and, uh, and certainly continue for weeks and weeks and weeks. That, that, would be, that would be a success for us tonight, okay? So we'll just jump right in. And we'll have, I've got some questions over here, I believe. Questions back there. Um, and fire away. Um, Jeff will take the hits and I'll be back here um, surfing the web. Jeff, by the way, nice to meet you guys. Okay, I'm ready. Sorry, sorry, boys. All right. Actually, I'll pull it real fast. I'll say how cool this is. I'm here for this. It's a huge blessing. Either you were really blessed by Sunday, and uh, God's really stirred your heart to love all Mormons and and care enough to reach them with the biblical gospel, or you're here because you came to watch the floor drop out from underneath and you fall into the crocodile. But either way, (laughs) I'm glad you're here. So... Uh, my name is Russ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for the sermon on Sunday. Um, this topic close to me growing up in Arizona and uh, kind of one of my questions, I guess, is more just um, kind of understanding. Obviously, you've had a lot more experience um, approaching this topic than, than I have. And I feel like one of the, the, the challenges that I always face when trying to talk to, to someone uh, Mormon is the, um, the, the sort of the blind faith reality that that exists where it's kind of like, well, you have faith, I have faith, why can't I have this faith? As well as um, s- sort of the, why well, have a happy family, why are, you trying to, why are you trying to disassemble that or attack that because we seem to be doing, doing just fine. And you kind of touched on it on Sunday about salvation and that minor topic, but um, I, if you could explore that a little bit more, uh, that'd be great because it seems to me that something comes up a lot. You're right. Um, when you are witnessing to someone that's LDS, one of the things you should know first and foremost is the reason why I love to minister to the LDS community is they're some of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet in your life. They are sweet. They are genuine. They are zealous. They are caring and loving people. They are gentle people. And so they're, they're one of my favorite uh, uh, groups to, to minister to, although I, I, we do lots of different ministry to all kinds of different groups. But they're, they're my favorite because... I mean, I have friends that are Mormon apologists and uh, famous Mormon apologists, well-known, and uh, I've created friendships that have lasted a long time. I have friendship the, friendships that have lasted for 15 years that began at the temple with people who were hostile to our faith. And so, but with that, um, and these, these, why I love to do that, one of the things you'll recognize um, immediately as you start dialoguing with someone that's LDS, particularly today, in today's context, is the Mormon faith is, is based on a lot of subjectivity. In other words, they'll tell you, hey, I prayed about it, I have a burning in my bosom, it feels right to me, How, who are you to say that I'm wrong? 
And uh, I would say that's a major distinction between biblical faith and the Mormon religion, and really ultimately a lot of other religions, is the subjective experience. I wanted to say this. When we say, I said this on Tuesday, I didn't get a chance to expatiate on it, or Sunday, sorry. I didn't get a chance to expatiate on it. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, as Christians, I think we need to take that seriously, that Jesus isn't just saying something that sounds poetic. He's saying something that's actually truth. And if you think about Pilate is standing before Jesus, and it's an interesting situation. He says, what is truth? Jesus says, whoever's of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Fancy that. Here's Pilate standing before the very embodiment of truth, asking what it is, right? Christians believe in the one who is the truth. And so with that, truth is truth. It's objective at bottom. It's not subjective. It may have subjective feelings that go along in pursuing it, but truth is truth. And so this whole problem we have dealing today with the modern uh, Latter-day Saint community is just this. When we start to minister to them, what they'll automatically fall back on is their testimony, their experience. And I want to say this. Um, I have gotten my hands on the Mormon training manuals and missionary training manuals, the things that they learn from. And in those training manuals, they actually instruct the missionaries. They say, if you run into a question that you don't have an answer to, if you're talking to a Christian and they bring up verses you don't have an answer to, they're actually instructed in these manuals to fall back on their testimony. Don't attempt to answer questions. Just start to bear your testimony. Now, why should that be a problem for us as Christians to live that way? Well, I want to just say this. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not blind leaps of faith into nothingness. Christianity is objectively true at bottom. Christians, Christians love the one who is the truth, so we pursue truth, we love truth, we embrace truth, we search for truth. We're not taking blind leaps of faith into nothingness. And so with that, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an apologia. The word apologia is the Greek word that would be used in a court of law to give a reasoned defense for your case. To everyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that's within you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So what is the Christian MO? Is it to say, hey, it's just by faith I believe this, simply by faith. Someone says, hey, why do you believe that? Oh, I just have faith. I want to say, I know Christians oftentimes respond that way. I think, and I don't, please don't take this as a jab to you at all. I think that on our part, that becomes a cop-out. We don't have an answer, so we say we accept it by faith. When the Bible tells us, it says to always be ready with an apologia, a reasoned defense for your case. So Christians are about giving answers, knowing truth, loving truth, pursuing truth, and saying this is right, that is wrong. Why should it be wrong for someone to say, I've prayed about it, it feels good to me, I have a burning in my bosom? Where do you start? Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't trust your heart. We're fallen human beings. Romans chapter 1 says that all of us suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And one of the resultant effects of that suppression of truth is that we exchange God for idols. And even with the testimony of the creation itself preaching to us about God, it says that we profess to be wise, we become fools. And it says even our thoughts become futile. And so we engage in self-deception. Our hearts are deceitful. We're fallen human beings. And, and so we can't trust our own hearts and our own feelings. And so the idea of a subjective experience as a test for truth is just wrong. It's not biblical. It's not good. And I want to say this to the Mormon. When I talk to them and I say, Jeff, I've had a burning in my bosom. I've prayed about this. What I tend to do is I'll try to do what the Proverbs says to do. And by the way, you should really grab onto this. Very important. The Bible tells us how to argue and how to communicate truth. Proverbs 26, verse 4, it says, Answer... Not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. 
And then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So taking the latter part of that verse, answering someone according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own conceit. Someone says to me, Jeff, I've prayed about this. It feels right to me. I'll typically say, okay, let's get a Muslim, a Jehovah's Witness, a Christian scientist, a Rosicrucian, um, and we go down the line, start lining up all the different religions, Hinduism and everything else. And guess what? They've all prayed about their religion. They all feel subjectively that it's true. And I want to ask the question, is Jesus, Michael the archangel, the second or the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God? I'll say that to the Mormon. They'll say, well, no. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that about Jesus, that he's Michael the archangel, the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God, that Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross. He was crucified on a tree and that only 144,000 people are going to be in the paradise with God. Do you believe that? And the Mormon will say, well, no, of course I don't believe that. I'll say, I, I, I'm with you on that. I believe that's unbiblical. It's not true, but they feel like it's true. Or let's take it a little further. How about the thief? The thief tells me, okay, that's not my wallet, but it's not the case that it's not my wallet. I feel like it is. Does that make it true? Or the person that says to me, Pastor Jeff, um, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I, were not married, and, you know, we really put this before the Lord, and we feel like he's really blessed in this relationship. You know, we're, we're going to go ahead and live together, and we're going to be in an intimate relationship with each other. You know, and we don't feel like the Lord's leading us to get married yet, but we really feel like God's blessing us. We really feel in our hearts that this is, this is an okay thing to do. Does that make it true? Because someone's subjective experience makes them feel that way. Let's be honest. There's all kinds of people in the world that have all kinds of funny feelings about things. And we don't say that that's true, right? So subjective tests for truth are no tests for truth. So what is a test for truth? And this is probably one of the, the bedrocks of all that Greg and I are going to be saying tonight. tonight. It's the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is theonoustos. It's a Greek word you need to learn to love. Matter of fact, I'm going to have you say it with me so you don't forget it, okay? Theonoustos. 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 And the word there, some of you guys might recognize, all scripture is God-breathed. And the word there is like this. If you put your hand in front of your face and you started to talk, you would feel breath hitting your hand. That's the idea of theonoustos. It's the very breathed-out word of God. Peter says that holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what do you have in the revelation of God? You have God, the Spirit of God's, own directed revelation of God through men that's the very breathed out word of God so that Jesus can actually say when he's talking to Jews, he says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? He equates the reading of scripture with God actually speaking. Now with that, with that standard, what Christians do is we go to the text of scripture and we say, well, what do the apostles do? What does Jesus do? They're always referring back to the Word of God as their basis of truth. What does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20? He says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no light in them. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, God gives a test of a prophet. It's really an amazing thing, guys. We often think about God giving the law. And this is very important to your question because this is probably one of the most single important answers you need to have for your Mormon friends. When God comes into a gracious relationship with Israel, we always think, well, he gives his law, so that's hardcore. Like, what, what's God? Like an oppressive taskmaster? No, it's grace. When God condescends, he's doing something false gods don't do, and that's revealing himself to his people. False gods can't do that because they are false. So when God gives his law, it's an amazing, gracious act. But one of the things he does in his love for them, in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4, is he protects them. How does he protect them? 
He says basically, even if somebody comes and they have signs and wonders, it looks like a miraculous ministry. It looks good. It looks like God's behind this. But then they lead you after other gods, God says in Deuteronomy 13. He says, that's how you know they're a false prophet. So what was the basis? What was the acid test for God and his people telling them, how do you know if somebody's from him? He says, if they lead you after other gods, gods which you have not known, that's how you know. And so the test there was, what is God's revelation? What has he revealed about himself? Now, what does this dude say? Compare, and then there's your answer. And so what, the standard of, uh, the, the, the objective infallible rule of faith for Christians is always sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our only infallible rule of faith. And so Christians are always going to the word of God to say, what does God say? And does this guy speak according to this word? And I would really try to press to the Mormon with love. I would say, can I please just ask you to think about this? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt. Who can know it? And I would say, you can't trust your heart. Have you ever been wrong before? Sure, I've been wrong before. Well, don't you believe that we're sinners? Yeah, we're sinners. Don't you believe that sin even corrupts our reasoning faculties? They'll say, well, yeah, I believe that. So don't you think we have to go to the objective testimony of God himself to say what is actually true? That's a very important question. Probably the one that's, that's going to come up the most is as you guys minister to your Mormon friends and family, you're going to realize that as you're giving them scripture, they're always going to fall back to that, well, I've prayed about it. And what you can do is you can say it right back to them. Answer them according to their folly. Say, well, I've prayed about it too. I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the one true church. That's what they're going to say to you. And what you can do is say, great, my turn. I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a false prophet. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a false church. Where do we go from there? I have an idea. Let's go to the words of God. And let's see if Joseph's testimony matches up with Jesus' own testimony. I have really an ultimate standard I'm going to fall on. That's this. Who do I believe? Joseph Smith Jr. or Jesus Christ? I'm going to go with Jesus. And that's where I want to take him. So that's a good question. That's a fantastic one. And, and as well, so we all know, um, the additional revelations, of course, the Book of Mormon, I have a copy up here. It, the title reads, Another Testament of Jesus. And so the Mormon may say, well, what is... What's wrong with, I agree with everything you just said, and I do read the word of God, and, and then they fill in the blank with their three other um, books that they tend to put in a quad, which would be this, and then Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. And by the way, Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price, this is where they get most of their, this is, a, a lot of it's history. Um, and that history is questionable, in my opinion, in and of itself. But this is where, so when, we're, when Jeff mentioned on Sunday, I believe, the issue about, you know, where you want to land is with God and who is God, that's where you can get in some interesting conversations because if you go back to their own material and challenge what they say and see if it lines up with what the Bible says, then they do have to respond with, well, they either have to be consistent or if there's inconsistencies, one has to trump the other. And that's the, that's the challenge a lot of Latter-day Saints have is all four of these books are authoritative. Um, so, for instance, if we were to say John 4, 24, God is what? Spirit. God is spirit. Well, in Doctrine and Covenants in chapter 132, verse 20, uh, 22, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, but the Holy Spirit has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. Now... So, 
again, back to this objectivity. Um, and this is where you want to try and land is ex- have, have me understand what's being said in here because you, you deem that as authoritative, but you also deem this as authoritative. And guys, this is where you have an advantage, I think, unlike with maybe uh, a Muslim or uh, someone of new age that doesn't hold this as authoritative. But if you're agreeing that this is authoritative, then as Jeff mentioned, stick with this. Which goes back to the question I think we've been talking about for months now. Do you know what? Do you know this? Um, another question or comment right back here. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Jeff, I just want to say Sunday was awesome. Uh, I thought I knew. Right back I, here, middle. Sunday, I just want to say Sunday was awesome. Uh, I just, I loved it. I thought I knew something about Mormonism until I came here Sunday. <laughs> uh, it really opened my eyes. I really thought the only difference between their Theirs and, and my being a Christian was that they believed in working out their, their salvation. It wasn't just through Jesus Christ. And then you open my eyes on Sunday, and I see that, that there's worlds of difference. Um, my question is, uh, since, they, since what you were saying on Sunday, they distort the truth so much from the Bible and the Book of Mormon, obviously. It seems almost in reverse from what the Book of Mormon says to compared to what the Bible says. Do you think that they're purposely, the church is purposely trying to distort young people and uh, distorting the truth? And and I I guess kind of like a cult, I I would say, is is what I'm trying to say. And they purposely going out and trying to, you know, they're obviously distorting the truth and, and, and the Bible, so... Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer in the sense of what, what is each person's motivation to why they're doing what they're doing. I, I, I guess I would want to go back to the scriptures. That's kind of the rule we just laid down, right? So I would want to go back to the scriptures and, and say, what does the Bible say about our nature? It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our sins and, trans, and trespasses. It says that we are by nature children of wrath. It says in Romans chapter 1 that all of us suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness and we exchange the truth of God for a lie And that means that basically this, guys, our default position is idolatry. Uh, John Calvin, famous Christian exegete, said the human heart is a natural idol-making factory, and it is never idle in making idols. Now, whatever you think of John Calvin, doesn't matter. That's a good quote, okay? Um, So Romans chapter 1 says that's our position. We exchange God for idols. So what is our default position? It's to switch God for idols. Sometimes people do that in false religion. Sometimes people do that with substance to drugs and alcohol. That's what drug and alcohol addiction is. It's a worship problem. It's an exchange of God for idols. Some people manifest their fallenness in a switching of God for sex, drugs, substance, self. Um, Sometimes they run over off into false religion. And so that's just kind of a part of our humanity as we do those sorts of things. However, um, the next thing I'll say is that Paul tells Timothy, he says... um, that the Lord's servant must be patient and wronged, um, uh, able to teach, and humility correcting those who oppose themselves, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, um, uh, to, leading to repentance, they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So the Bible teaches that there is a real spiritual uh, element to this, not only our own spiritual condition of fallenness and our exchange of God for idols, our suppression of truth, but also the fact that there is a spiritual element we need to be aware of. We shouldn't be people that say, hey, the devil made me do it, and we're always constantly looking for the devil behind every rock, but we do need to be aware of the fact that there is a deception going on. Now, what do I believe about Joseph Smith? 
I believe that Joseph knew he was a false prophet. And the reason why I believe that is because you brought up the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith claims in the original first vision that you'll get today. By the way, there are many, many different accounts of the first vision. The one you get today when missionaries come to your door is one version of the first vision. There were, there were multiple different accounts and they contradict each other. But the one you get today is what? That he says he was inquiring of which church to join... And he goes into the woods and he, he takes James chapter 1 where it says, If anybody of you lacks wisdom, let a mask of God and God will give it to you. But by the way, he took it out of context. It didn't mean what he was asking for. And so he goes into the woods, he says, and this darkness falls over him. And then above him, God the Father, a man separate from Jesus Christ, another flesh and bone man, appear to him. And God tells Joseph to join none of the churches for they were all wrong. All their creeds, that's everything we believe, are an abomination. All their professors, that's you and that's me, are all corrupt. That's Joseph's first vision. And so what he's told is... And they, and they were corrupt for, for 1,800 years. Yeah. They, I mean, exactly. so Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, all of it. All gone. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, Joseph taught not that the church needed a reformation, but it needed a restoration because it was gone. That there was a full apostasy. Right. That after the apostles died, there was an apostasy and the church was gone. The spirit of God was gone from the face of the earth in that sense for all those years. So Joseph then says he gets the revelation of where the golden plates are. He says he receives his golden plates wherein there was written reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics where he translated those with the gift of, of a seer, with the gift and power of God. He said it was the most correct of any book on earth and the man could get closer to God by obeying, by obeying its precepts than any other book. Now, why do I believe Joseph knew he was a false prophet? A, because he gave many false prophecies. Um, B, uh, also specifically in this area, I believe that Joseph knew he was deliberately deceiving the Mormon people because um, he said he had the ability to translate Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. Number one, there's no such language as Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. It doesn't exist. Uh, the next thing is, is the golden plates, gone. They disappeared. They went to heaven. Um, the next thing is, is in 1835... A guy named Michael Chandler was going through Ohio with an um, exhibit of Egyptian uh, stuff. There was mummy stuff, there was manuscripts, there was papyrus, and, and the, the LDS people were all there and, as a community. And this guy comes through with his Egyptian exhibit, and uh, as they get there, at the time, in 1835, nobody could, nobody could translate the Egyptian language. It was known as a dead language at the time because the Rosetta Stone had not yet been... Dis- <laughs> Rosetta Stone. There's... Right? The Rosetta, no, that's for real. You guys laughing. I'm like, what? That's for real. Okay, the Rosetta Stone is a stone that basically translated from the Egyptian into Greek, and so you can understand what Egyptian was. And so at the time, that information had not come over from Europe yet, so in America it wasn't here. So here comes this exhibit into Ohio, where the LDS people are, and they see these manuscripts, these papyrus uh, uh, stuff, and they say, hey, our prophet Joseph Smith translates dead languages. He's a prophet. And the guy, Chandler, says, bring him on in. And so Chandler's trying to sell this exhibit. Joseph comes in and says, yeah, I can translate this. He starts saying what it is. And so what happens is the Mormon people end up collectively bringing together a large sum of money, a massive amount of money they they dedicated to this project, to purchasing all of this stuff so that Joseph could get it. Now, Joseph said, lo and behold, this is the book of Abraham. This has been sovereignly brought to us by God. It's Abraham's own hand he wrote this on. It's been brought to us by God. And that's where we have, do you have it right here? The pearl of great price. So 
the Pearl of Great Price revelation, Joseph says these, this papyrus is the book of Abraham written by his own hand. God's providentially brought it to us. And so Joseph began the translation. And in his journals, he had, today I finished the translation. Today we worked on the translation. Today we worked on the translation. And so what happened is he even made an Egyptian alphabet and grammar based on the manuscript of the papyrus that he had. Here's a copy of the uh, actual papyrus that Joseph had. Can't see it all too, too good where you're sitting, but that's a copy of it. And Joseph basically gave us the Pearl of Great Price, which is his translation of this papyrus. Now, here's the problem. After Joseph was murdered in Carthage, and it was murder, it was unjust what happened to him. There's no question about that. He was definitely murdered, and it wasn't right. After he was murdered, um, the church starts to split up a bit, and this disappears. And everybody thought it had been destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. And so what happened was these Egyptologists began to see the Pearl of Great Price pictures... And they started to say, hey, we recognize this thing. This is a common Egyptian funerary text. We know what this is. But the Mormon apologists of the day were saying, oh, we don't have a copy of the original papyrus. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know that that's what Joseph had. And so everybody thought there's no way to figure this out. Until the 1960s, a man was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Something caught his eye. He saw this. And as he saw these pictures, he recognized one of the pictures as being very similar to a friend of his who was a neighbor of his who had the Pearl of Great Price. And he recognized the picture. In the 1960s, this was delivered from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was delivered to the LDS Church. And the LDS Church was saying, we're vindicated. We're vindicated. We're going to prove to the whole world that Joseph Smith's a prophet and had the gift of, of, of a seer and that he could, in fact, translate dead languages into English because now this is the papyrus. And I have friends who were in the LDS church that are in Christ now, that were alive at that time, and they said that it was all of the talk all the time. All anybody talked about, they say, was the fact that we're going to prove to the world that he was a prophet because we've got the actual papyrus right in front of us. We've got his translation, and we've got the papyrus. We're going to show he had the gift of a seer. He could translate dead languages. And so the church got it. They, put, they published articles about it in their magazines. And they gave the task of translation to two Mormons. After about a year went by, these men who were sanctioned to do the translation of the papyrus, they came back to the leadership of the church and they said, we have a problem. This papyrus has nothing to do with what we have in the Pearl of Great Price. As a matter of fact, this papyrus is a common pagan Egyptian funerary text that was rolled up and put behind the heads of mummies to help them breathe into the afterlife. As a matter of fact, it's not even from the era of Abraham. It comes many, many, many centuries later, and it's common, it's everywhere. And we have Joseph's translation and the actual papyrus. We've got it. There were instances where Joseph had the word the, and he would translate an entire paragraph off of the word the. The word was water, and he would do two paragraphs off of the word water. And I believe based on that, you can see with his false prophecies, what he taught falsely about God, and the fact that he demonstrated irrefutably that he did not have the gift of a prophet to be able to translate dead languages. I believe that Joseph knew that he was deceiving people. Now, what I want to say to anybody in this room right now that is LDS, or you have friends and family that are LDS, listen, this does not mean this is your responsibility. 
That's oftentimes what I want to tell the people who are Latter-day Saints is this is not your responsibility. Listen, you're not responsible for Joseph Smith's false prophecies. You're not responsible for his false teachings. This is not an indictment on you because Joseph did this. But what is your responsibility from this point on? Is when you discover that God says anybody who gives a false prophecy is a false prophet. When you discover that God says in Deuteronomy 13 that anybody teaches falsely about God, they're a false prophet. And when you have demonstrable evidence right in front of your very eyes that Joseph Smith deliberately lied to the Mormon people about his gift to be able to translate dead languages, you have a responsibility at that point not to abandon faith, but to now take your trust and throw it fully on Jesus, the King of glory. That's your responsibility. You, you may discuss with missionaries that come to your door. You may give them, uh, I've got a number of false prophecies here. They're very factual, and they just simply did not happen. Joseph would prophesy that people would become missionaries, and they would uh, serve in the church for years to come. They would end up leaving the church months later, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I've challenged missionaries with that, their, their answer is pretty much um, company line and I want to read you something. Ezra Taft Benson was the 13th Mormon president. Um, this is a quote from him uh, in 1980. He said, we believe that when the prophet, the head of our church, says something that is definitely wrong, he was not being inspired at that time. He was only speaking as a man. We believe that the newer prophets can override the older prophets. See, guys, and, and that's the loophole. Um, I've talked to many missionaries, and they've said, well, do you think that Isaiah was a prophet, and I would say, well, yeah, I think he's a prophet. And they said, well, do you think that everything he said was right? See, and the point was that couldn't Isaiah have been walking along the road and hit a rock and, and you know, and got angry? And, and so, in other words, they want to calculate into the equation the humanity of the prophet, which is fine, except when we believe that what Isaiah wrote down as prophecy, then we do hold him to that. That has to be correct. So all the prophecies that Joseph made... Listen, if Joseph just wanted to go have a Coke with... Well, uh, have something with somebody, he could. Um, we don't consider that prophecy. What we're, what we're just simply asking is the things that he wrote down that clearly are prophecy, did they come true or not? And that's what we would ask you to hold the biblical prophets to. We're not asking for an exception or you know, some sort of different evaluation evaluate it all the same the the challenge comes i think for our lds friends is when the prophecies don't come true or when things that were said in the 1830s or 40s or 50s or 60s when again the culture was different back then um and you know if you were to make up something or or be guided by something other than god himself you can't be right if you're going to predict things that, are, that people are going to believe 150, 200 years from now. You just, you're not that, we're not that smart. And so for African Americans, for instance, they weren't allowed into the priesthood until 1978. And Spencer Kimball, uh, one of the other Mormon presidents, said, uh, because again, what was happening in the 60s and 70s with equal rights? And, and so tides are shifting. But up until then, if you were African American, you weren't allowed to be a priest. And that is significant as it pertains to the afterlife and who gets to the celestial kingdom. And priesthood is very, very important to an LDS. Well, if you're African-American in the 1940s, you have no shot. So in 1978, Spencer Kimball received a revelation from God. In fact, he sent it out to all the Mormons. There was a letter that went out 
that basically said things have changed. And now African-Americans can be entered in the priesthood, receive full authority just as anyone else can. Well, it just begs the question, what changed? And the answer for our LDS friends will be new revelation. Well, guys, that's a dangerous place to be because it leaves you wondering what's around the corner. Will the new revelation ever stop? And so the LDS president, the, the, the top dog right now, Monson, Thomas Monson, he has the authority much like the Pope has the authority to speak ex cathedra. In other words, he can say, I've received a revelation from God and it's to be, it's to be received as gold, as the word of God. Well, I, you know, whether you like that or not, um, and by the way, Catholics, though, they have that option the popes haven't used that option for ex-cathedra for hundreds of years because they realize how vital it is to once you say this is from the word of God, you better be right. There's a lot riding on that. For the average, everyday, hardworking Mormon, there's a lot riding on that. You're putting a lot of faith into a person. Whereas I think what we're trying to communicate is I want to put all of my faith into God himself. Or Jesus Christ. Yep. The and then question right question. there. Just quickly. Um, that's very important. If you're in this room right now and you are LDS, you have LDS sympathies in some way, let me just in- encourage you with something very, very important here. Um, we, uh, Christians are not saying, hey, God says in Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 through 22 that if you have even one false prophecy, you are a false prophet. That's a zero fail. You cannot fail. We're not saying, so let's apply that to Joseph and see if we can smear him with it. And what we're in fact saying is this, the Bible is distinct from every other man-made religion in that God actually says as an acid test, you want to know if someone's from me, you want to know if they're from the true and living God, only the true and living God can declare what the future will be because God says he declares the end from the beginning. And one of the ways you know someone is truly from God is that God can actually tell you the future before it happens because he owns it. And God says, if you want to know if someone's from me, if they have even a single false prophecy, they're done. That, hey, amazing situation we have in this book right here, in this, really, Revelation, 66 different books and letters, 1,500 years of composition, 40 different authors, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. Here's the deal. You want to you wreck Christianity? You want to destroy Christianity in one swoop? Find one false prophecy in this entire revelation, and it is mythology. If Jesus had a single false prophecy... He's a false prophet, and you are commanded by God to reject him as a false prophet. Here's the deal. I've tried <laughs> to find it, and it is glorious. Jesus shows that he, is, he displays himself as Mashiach, as the promised Messiah, and that he's constantly giving prophecy, and he nails it. Now, Joseph gave many false prophecies. All it took was one. All it took was one. So I think it's critical to make that point. Yeah. Right over here. Hi, Pastor Chef. Um, my name's Matt. <clears throat> so, you know, as a, as a Muslim or a Jew where their religion is very um, embedded in their culture, um, I guess my question is for a Mormon, uh, they live in, in a tight community. So in your past experience, I know like uh, this past uh, last year, there was a big Newsweek article on Mormonism, a lot having to do with, you know, Romney coming into, into play. Right. What are, what are your thoughts on how do you reach a Mormon if it's, he's, he's so embedded in 
the culture of who he is in their religion. So what are some of the challenges? What are some of the things to, to think about, you know, similar to a Muslim or a Jew coming into faith? That's a good question. Um, this and we have more questions. I'm going to limit you to like three minutes. Okay, this is, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. This is really, this is really important because um, Dr. Walter Martin encouraged you guys to get a book called Kingdom of the Cults. If you don't have it in your library, you need it in your library. It's called The Kingdom of the Cults, Dr. Walter Martin. And he started the book the right way. He talked about scaling the language barrier, making sure you get behind the language. And he also has a section in there about the sociological manipulation of the cults. Now, I'm not trying to throw that one as a dirty word, just putting it in the classic sense of the word. The kind of manipulation that exists in the Watchtower, Bible and Tract Society, Mormonism, um, the Christian science religion, all these different religions is, is sociological manipulation where they do a lot of things like love bombing. They love bomb you, just love bomb you, love bomb you, love bomb you. And as soon as you start to pull away or question the authority, they start, they start pulling back some of the love. Or there's threats, like in the Watchtower, um, the threat is, is if you apostatize or even read any literature that is actually criticizing the organization... You can be excommunicated, and family members are told in the watchtower that if you get excommunicated, they are not even allowed to have eye contact with you. Now, with that kind of manipulation, there's a real fear about abandoning or leaving the church. Sometimes we walk in the, at the temple, and we'll, we'll go, hey, God bless you guys. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Real kind, real blessing. People will say, is that anti-literature? And we'll say, well, we're Christians. We care for you. And they'd say, that's anti. No, thanks. They, can't, they act like it's literally on fire. It's because they're taught in their wards that if you go to the temple and you see these guys giving literature, do not look at it. Do not read it. They are antis. They will lead you astray, and so there's that manipulation. But let me get to the bedrock. Very important. How do you reach them when there's that kind of manipulation? Doesn't it seem obvious? Jesus says you must be born again. God says that he removes hearts of stone in Ezekiel 36 and turns them into hearts of flesh. Jesus, when he was healing blind people, you understand, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus was healing blind people, it wasn't just a feat. He was demonstrating that he has the power as a son of God to give eyes to the blind, to give ears to deaf people. The miracles were signs that Jesus had this deeper power to be able to raise the dead to life. And the truth of the matter is this. You want to lead your Mormon friends and family to Christ? Stop trying to put yourself in the story. Give them the very words of God and let them wrestle with God. Let me just say this to you. Every, this is the example I'll give to you. Every single person that I've ever seen come out of the LDS community into a relationship with Jesus Christ and be saved has always said to me, Jeff, it was that verse you gave me. Jeff, it was that thing you told me from Romans. Jeff, it was that thing you told me there. And they'll always say something like, I went home and I was so challenged by that and so convicted by that and I couldn't get out of my head and my ears. And it was that that God used to open their eyes. And to raise them to life. Because you see, I'm going to tell you right now, you and I are never going to convince somebody to, to, to come out of these organizations when they risk so much with your fancy theological footwork. They are going to come out when they come to Christ to be joined to Him in His death and resurrection and they come to die and rise again. The truth is you need the very words of God to penetrate their hearts so that they can come to life and be saved. What did I say on, on, on Sunday? And it may, not have, it may have slipped past you. I said, Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You want to reach them? Give them the words of God. Give them the gospel. And they'll come to life. That's the truth. Right here. Hey, Jeff. Hey. So, grew up Mormon until I was about 13. Um, 
well over 100 members of my immediate family, two uncles and an aunt are still LDS. My one uncle's a bishop. So very um, near and dear to my heart, and I appreciate everything you said. So much has just resonated very um, clear with me. Um, I'm not even sure how to ask this, <laughs> so I'll stumble around. But I, I, I guess it's as much asking your um, thoughts on it as, as it is a question. But I have a cousin in particular that is um, one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Uh, my wife and I actually went and um, heard him speak at his church, in a Mormon church. And he, up on the pulpit, basically proclaimed Jesus to be his Lord and Savior, his personal Savior. Something I had never really heard in a Mormon church before, but right. very clear. Right? right, And in my personal dealings with him, I can't speak for all my other family, but I can tell you with him, I've had enough one-on-one conversations with him. I truly believe that he does believe that, that Jesus is his personal Lord and Savior. And the education I've had as a Christian, since being baptized Christian, after being baptized Mormon, is that ultimately that's all it takes. And to accept Jesus in your heart. Now, he still lives as a Mormon. He's actually a very prominent Mormon, very well-known in the Mormon church. Um, I struggle with that. I don't know how to, you know, I get asked a lot when people find out a Mormon, are Mormons saved? Are they yeah. going to heaven? And I honestly do not know how to answer that, yeah. especially given these kind of personal. So I'm just curious if you have any comments on that. So you thank were you. LDS, now you're in Christ? Yes. Okay, real fast. <laughs> So that's the $64,000 question is, yeah, is yeah. <laughs> can a Mormon be a Christian? And probably, can a Mormon be saved? Yeah. You have about two minutes to answer okay, that. Okay, quickly. <laughs> I have sins in this area. Um, well, okay, here's the thing. Very important. Let me just read you a couple quotes from Mormon prophets and apostles. Um, Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses. The Christian world, so-called, are heathens as to their knowledge of the salvation of God. Um... John Taylor, president of the Mormon Church, prophet. The devil could not invent a better engine to spread his work than Christianity of the 19th century. Brigham Young. Brother Taylor has said that the religions of the day were hatched in hell, Christianity. The eggs were laid in hell, hatched on its borders, and then kicked to the earth. With regard to true theology, a more ignorant people never lived the present so-called Christian world. Christians, Heber Kimball, apostle. These poor, miserable priests Brother Brigham was speaking about, some of them are the biggest whore masters there are on earth. And at the same time, preaching righteousness to the children of men, the poor devils. They could not get up here and preach an oral discourse to save themselves from hell. They are preaching their father's sermons, the devil. Preaching sermons that were written a hundred years before they were born. You may get a Methodist priest to pour water on you or sprinkle it on you and baptize you face foremost or lay you down the other way and whatever mode you please and you will be damned with your priest. Christianity, John Taylor said, is a perfect pact of nonsense. The devil could not invent a better engine to spread his work than the Christianity of the 19th century. Clear enough? Um, Here's the thing. I don't know the heart of the person who says, I trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. I will say this, that the Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of Scripture. And we may use the same terminology. We may talk about Jesus Christ. But if you ask your cousin... If you ask him, do you believe that Jesus is Lucifer's brother? Do you believe that they're brothers, spirit brothers, with you? Do you believe that through, through faith and works you will exalt to become a god one day? And he will say, yes. And if he's trusting in that Christ and that gospel, then we have to say he doesn't know God. 
even though he's using the same terminology. And I know that breaks our hearts. I know that's hard for us to hear. But, but goodness gracious, Christians, listen. If we love somebody, we tell them the truth. True love tells the truth. It loves somebody enough to actually lay your life down to reach them and to be able to say, listen, I know that I might take hits for this, but I'm going to love you anyways. Let me say this. I believe that it is possible for someone to be in the Mormon communion, hear the biblical gospel, biblical Christ, and be saved, and then come out. I have somebody at my church that was in the Mormon communion, baptized, was Mormon, started reading the scriptures, started talking to me, hearing the gospel. He was saved while he was still in that communion. But notice, he was saved despite the Mormon church. And he came out. I believe that a Christian who's indwelled by the Spirit of God will not be able to sit under the preaching of a community that says that we believe a false gospel. Of a community that says that Jesus isn't the eternal God, but one God among many, and you can become one one day. I believe that God will call us people out. And guys, one of the things that separates Christianity from every other major world religion is the deity of Jesus Christ. You either have to accept Jesus as fully God and fully man, or you don't. But the Bible doesn't leave you the option of good teacher, good guy. And so, so you need to decide. I need to decide. When Jesus said, uh, well, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, was God, the Word was God. Is Jesus God or is he not? And Mormons clearly believe one of the major distinctions between Mormonism and Christianity regarding Jesus himself is we do not believe Jesus is God. And so the Holy Trinity comes into play now. Now we've got an issue of, do you believe in the Holy Trinity? Well, no, we don't. And so there are ma- these are the differences when we talk about major doctrine versus minor doctrine. Major doctrines are the things you need to take a bullet for. They're the things you need to go to your grave for. And, and we need to stand up strong and say, I may not understand it all. I can't draw a picture um, of the Trinity But I know the word of God claims that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and God the Father is God. And I am on a journey and will be on a journey for my life to try to understand that and discover it, but I do not deny it. Whereas an LDS will, if they're true to their doctrine, cannot claim that Jesus and Elohim are the same person. Two separate personages. It's a big difference. And this verse might help with this. This is a very important verse, guys. 2 John Early in the first century, Gnosticism is creeping into the church. What are the Gnostics teaching? They're teaching that Jesus Christ did not take on flesh. That flesh is dirt, it's evil. God would never do that. God would never take on flesh because flesh is evil. That's what the Gnostics believe. These guys are infiltrating the church in the first century, and the Apostle John has to deal with them. The early beginnings of it are coming in. And here's what he says to somebody that denies that God actually took flesh on him. John says this, to Christians, this is to us guys. He says, Second John verse nine, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has the Father and the Son. And so what's interesting is we live in a Christian culture today where someone says, hey, that's their truth, leave them alone, don't pick on them. John says this straight up, first century. He says, if someone does not abide in the teaching of Christ, they don't have God. And he actually goes so far to say after that, if you have one of these Gnostic teachers that's denying the actual nature of Christ, that God became flesh and walked among us, he says, you don't even let these guys into your house. Now, watch this. Pause. Very important to do proper hermeneutics at this point, right? He's not saying don't let them into your house. The Christians met in churches in their homes. 
He's saying, don't let one of these false teachers who's teaching this infiltrate your ranks and lead your people astray in your home. John says, if anyone goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, he does not have God. So it's our duty to love on them enough to reach them. And it's going to cost you a lot. Yep. It's going to cost you a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go here and then here. Um, I'll make this quick because we don't have much time. On Sunday, uh, Pastor Jeff, you were talking a little bit about the, the theology uh, of the Mormon church. And I'm wondering, that your average everyday Mormon, how much of that theology are they actually aware Good of? Question. That's an excellent yeah. question. Especially today. Well, I mean, I, I was talking to a Mormon the other day, actually about a year ago, and <laughs> days like a thousand years, <laughs> thousand years like a day, and um, and they were challenged. I was saying something about Elohim, and they said, "Well, I don't believe in Elohim. Like, who is Elohim?" Right. And I thought, "Well, what do you mean, who's Elohim?" And then I started thinking, "Well, do I have this wrong or something?" <laughs> or you know, and so yeah, and so you know, and and let's just be fair though. Um, Many Christians aren't astute in the depths of theology. And so I want to be fair there. But yeah, so it's not, so you can't go to an LDS and say, well, your doctrine says this, 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 and this. And they may not have read that yet. They may not be up to speed yet. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that, um, you, you know, it's, it's an individual situation. Dr. James White is one of my heroes. He spent so many years in ministry on this. He said something before, before. I was like, that's exactly what I'm noticing. When I first came to Arizona talking to Mormons at the temple, they were ready to go. They were ready to go. I mean, they came surrounding us. And we were surrounded by packs of just return missionaries, missionaries, young Mormons, old Mormons. They wanted to talk. They wanted to go to the text. They wanted to get into it. And it was awesome. It was incredible. It was inspiring to say, let's talk. Let's, 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 get, let's engage the scriptures together. But something shifted. In the last 10 years, in the Mormon community, it, is, it has gone even more to the side of subjectivity. And many Mormons don't even know what their own history of their church is or their own theology is. Uh, uh, so oftentimes I'll say, well, your church teaches this. i say, I never heard that. And then I'll show them and they'll go, okay, I believe that. <laughs> I'm at the temple one year. This is a great question you ask. Um, I'm at the temple one year. I'm talking to a guy that's been a Mormon for 30 years. And I say... Um, well, the Mormon church teaches that Heavenly Father came down and had, had physical sexual relations with Mary to produce Jesus. And forgive me, but that's, this is what the church taught. Mormon prophets and apostles taught that, clear and direct, no question. And I, and I have on our track that this is what, and I even have the references. They can go right to Brigham Young and they can look at, they can hear him say it. So this guy was angry with me. You're lying about us. You can't, you're misrepresenting us. And this is, you're not going to reach anybody out here if you're going to lie about us. And I said, I would never do that. So would you show me how I'm wrong in the quotes? And so he's like, you're lying, you're lying. And I have a friend who's a well-known Mormon apologist who writes for all the famous websites. And he was standing nearby. And I said, I've known him for a decade. I said, Craig, come here a second, come here a second. He's like, what's up, Jeff? (laughs) He's LDS. And I said, could you do me a favor? Could you tell him what your church teaches about Heavenly Father and Mary? And he goes... Oh, you mean about Elohim and Mary having sex? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, we teach that. And he goes, I have never heard that. And my friend said, well, I teach doctrine classes for seven different wards. It's what they taught. There's no way around it. And he said, well, I need to look into this. And they, I saw them walk away a little bit later, and they're going to fingers in each other's faces. And, <laughs> but it finally came down to, you, you understood. So th- the truth is, is many people who are in the modern LDS community, they don't know the history of their church. And many times it's hid from them. Uh, they don't know their own theology. And many times it's just up to us as Christians to love them enough to actually spend the time saying, 
Well, this is what your prophet said. Here's, look, here's what he says. And then look, this is what the Bible says right here. Let them see it. And then they go, I didn't know that. My, the guy that's in my church right now, his name is Brad. We call him B-Rad. Um, is B-Rad in here right now? No? Okay, B-Rad. Uh, that was his experience. Was He was there. He said he thought it was a Christian church. And then as he was there, they started saying strange things. He called me up. He asked some questions. And he was like, yeah, that does say this. The Bible says this. I'm out. I'll take Jesus. <laughs> and that's, that's what's what happened. So I, let me just encourage us as Christians. Please get into this to know enough to be able to reach them. Um, I don't know if we have PowerPoint up. Um, I was telling Jeff before the service started. Uh, this is, if you get married in the temple, this is one of the... Uh, quote the the recitals you'll have to say and so you'd fill in your name here do you take so and so to give them to your lawfully wicked uh wicked wedded wife and i did not nope nope no and uh receive him to be your lawfully wedded husband for all time and eternity covenant drop down and matrimony in the new and everlasting covenant and then uh the last part by virtue of the holy priesthood and authority vest i pronounce you blah blah legally and lawfully wedded for Wife for all eternity, right? So, so when you get married in the temple, and again, you don't have to, but you both have to have temple recommends to get married in the temple. And again, that, that matters for an eternity. Um, get married in the temple versus not getting married in the temple. And so if you get married in the temple, you will say something like this. And so when Leanne died three years ago, I had three Mormon missionary women come to my door. And uh, like Jeff said, extremely compassionate, crying. I didn't know them. It was the mother of one of my son's classmates and, her, and two friends. And we got, and so I knew this, and because I teach some of this, and so and so when they sat down, I was sincerely curious, and and guys, that's the difference between like sincere and just I just want to pick a fight. And so when they sat down and they're crying with me and they're you know they're comforting me, is two or three weeks after Leanne dies, and and so I knew enough to know well I, I need some answers here, and if you have some answers, I'm willing to listen. And so they said, well, what can I help you with? And I said, okay, well, I understand that. You know, if you die as a, you know, and, and you're, so Leanne dies, she's not a, a Mormon, but according to Mormon theology, she will spend some time in what they deem as sort of a, a holding, if you will. It's not purgatory, but it's sort of a holding where she will be preached to by Mormons who have died as well, the, the, the true gospel, if you will. And if she accepts that, and that's why they baptize people that have passed on by proxy in the temples, they spend a great deal of time doing that. And so the, the ladies informed me, chances are pretty good that Leanne was baptized uh, sometime in her life, because she lived here in Arizona her whole life, by someone, by proxy, even though she wasn't a Mormon. So she got baptized by proxy. She's died, and let's say she accepts the gospel after she's passed on. So now she has a chance. And then they said, if I, if I become a Mormon, now we can be joined together again when I die. And I said, well, that's, that's great. I want to see Leanne again, I, you know, but I said... But I got a question then. What if I remarry here on earth? And my wife and I, my second wife and I, were driving down the street and boom. Now you got me, my second wife, and Leanne in the afterlife. And I, I have to be married to one of them. So who am I married to in the afterlife? And guys, I'm serious. I was sincere about this. I didn't want to. And, and the look on their faces was priceless. Because they just did not know. And they were in a real-time, real-life situation. We weren't in class. We weren't in some academic crucible. They knew I just lost the woman I loved. And, and yet I had, a, I had a legitimate question. Chances are I'll probably get married again. So which is it? And the two novices, if you will, the two interns, looked at the one that was kind of the senior one. 
And they were just looking at her like, please, please, please have an answer for this guy. (laughs) And here was her answer. Greg, there are some things that we just won't know this side of heaven. Well, I'm sorry, but if it's that important to your theology that we will be married in the afterlife, you need to give me an answer this side of heaven. It's unsatisfactory. If we're talking about, it would be equivalent to me saying, well, there's a heaven and a hell, but I don't really know who goes to which. We'll just have to figure it out later. No. We have a responsibility. And so I I would wholeheartedly agree. And again, apples to apples, guys, I would say that the Christian culture has shifted. When I first became a believer in 1986, it was about, what does the Word of God say? Let's talk theology. Let's get into this. And I talked to my students today, and a lot of it is, I feel a certain way, and I just kind of know. And well, where does the Bible say this? Well, I really don't know. So we need to be fair on that. Do, are we, are, if we're not ashamed of the gospel, then we need to proclaim the gospel. But that begs the question, do you know the gospel? Mm-hmm. And can you clearly explain it? Um, okay, we're, it's 8.04, so here's the deal. I'm going to pray for us really quick. Um, if you need to go get your child care because we have volunteers just serving Jesus back there watching your kids, um, then you can go get your kids. And, and, but if you want to stick around for a few more minutes uh, and ask a few more questions, do you have time? Yeah, I thought we were going to like 11, so I'm good. Okay. Okay. So let me, uh, let me just pray for us real quick. And then if you want to stick around, um, we'll keep the mics on. Jesus, thank you for tonight. Jesus, our heart is not um, to be uh, uh, in a war of words. Um, Father, it's to see as many people into the kingdom as possible. And God, we know, uh, as Jeff said, um, it's not an argument that's going to bring someone in. It's the living word of God. And so God, whatever it takes for us to become students of your word, whatever it takes for us to become motivated to not be ashamed of the gospel, Whatever it takes for us to come to church eager to learn, to come to, to small groups and, and, uh, and small churches and Sunday services and Tuesday nights, eager to learn for the purpose of sharing that great news with other people. Maybe it's an LDS neighbor, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a coworker. God, that would be our hearts. And so I hope, God, I certainly have learned tonight, I hope people have as well, and, and we will take this information and... Father, just continue to ask you for opportunities to share the good news with people. And to you, we will give the glory in your name. Amen. Can I do one thing before you leave, just real fast? Say whatever you want. I just want to introduce you guys real fast. Luke and, Luke and Joy around. I saw two people over here to your right that okay, come on up had the same shirts on. I just want to introduce so. you guys, for those of you guys that might be leaving, uh, we have a ministry called Apologia Radio. Has anybody heard it yet? Apologia Radio? Nobody? Okay. One fan. Right on. Okay. <laughs> people from my church like, woo! Um, Apologia Radio is on 1360 KPXQ It's a Christian station out here It's on Saturdays between 4 and 6 But you can get the podcast ApologiaRadio.com This is my uh, fellow elder My other pastor on staff with me That's Luke So hi to Luke And um, I know I know he does not look like a pastor But he's an awesome one And this is Joy So hi to Joy And um just want to encourage you guys, uh, we see this as part of what we're doing tonight is talking about a lot of things that we talk about regularly on Apologia Radio, so I encourage you guys, if you guys would, check it out, ApologiaRadio.com, 
You guys can see us in the back over there to get more information. So if you guys are leaving, you guys pick stuff up, get to know us. We'd love to get to know you guys. And pray for us. We are trying to raise support for Apologia Radio right now. And you can ask us about that later. We're trying to actually get about 100 supporters at about $50 a month support. So we're really trying to do that. And we're really asking as we do the radio show for people to help us with that. But I just want to introduce you guys. So as you listen to the show, you've officially met the team. And uh, it's a lot of fun. We, uh, we have one episode you should check it out where I prank called Ramon Pierre. Do you know Ramon from Roosevelt Community Church? Do you know? No. no? Uh-uh. Uh, I prank called a pastor. It was dirty. Um, <laughs> check it out. So we do some fun stuff. It's not just like dry theology. We wanted to do a show that was like theologically rigorous, but fun and edgy. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. So I just wanted to have you guys uh, to meet, meet the team. So thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Question over here. Go ahead. Uh, hey, Jeff, I, I had uh, the other day, I, I'm in the construction business, and I had the opportunity to be in one of the temples that was under construction. The one over here? No, the one in, uh, I'm actually doing both, but the one in Phoenix. And um, the guy that, one of my dear friends and, and one of my customers is a Mormon bishop. And we were talking about, he took me downstairs and showed me the baptismal. And I guess I really wasn't aware that that is day in and day out something that they do daily. You just touched on it, right? Um, baptism for the dead, correct? And and that's really one of the huge reasons why the temples exist and why they're putting new ones in because they just don't have enough time to get right. all these people baptized. Now I was raised Southern Baptist. I feel like I got a really good handle on the Bible because we we did that, you know, like and. When I asked him about baptism of the dead, he referred me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I got to say, out of all the reading I've done, that never really stood out in my head. But what is Paul talking about there? Because he makes it sound legit when you read the Bible. And is it legit? And, and uh, are we missing something? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, a resurrection passage. Um, this is important. One thing that's to notice is that uh, oftentimes when you speak to someone that's LDS, um, they're, they're taught in seminary proof texts. Okay? For example, if you were to say to them, there's only one God, they'll say, well, the Bible says there are God's many and Lord's many. The Christians go, oh, man, where did that come from? Yeah. I don't know. I was in there. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. <laughs> oops. Um, but the truth is, as you read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is having a discussion about idols and false gods. And uh, the discussion is about, is about meat offered to idols and sacrifice to them. And he says uh, that there are many gods and many lords in the world, but there's only one true God. And he says these are false gods, so don't worry about the meat offered to false gods because there's only one God. It actually literally says it in a text, there's only one God. Two times, and in the middle it says, for there be gods many and lords many, referring to false gods. So they'll often do that. But in uh, the, the baptism for the dead, Mormons practice baptism for the dead because they believe that's part of their temple ritual to help others become Mormons in the afterlife. And they base it off of a text in Corinthians about why do they baptize for the dead if the dead do not rise. Uh, notice that Paul was talking about they. Why do they baptize for the dead if the dead do not rise? Uh, the discussion is not about what do Christians do. But what, it's a particular discussion about what going, is going on at the time with people who are denying a resurrection. So why do they baptize the dead if the dead don't rise? It's not what are we doing as Christians, but what are they doing? And also, I would say a very important element, to, I, 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 would, I would hope to give some oomph to this. And that is to say that Mormons believe that baptism is a part of the process of salvation. 
In other words, baptism is that part of you contributing a certain level of personal righteousness and obedience to becoming righteous in God's eyes or ultimately becoming a God one day. Now, this is probably the big oomph to get to it because I wouldn't want to just hang on the discussion of baptism for the dead without getting somewhere with it. What I want to demonstrate to them is the gospel is clearly distinct from baptism. And and to give you that point, I would take you to the uh, first chapter of Corinthians where Paul discusses baptism. This is really important. Um, And uh, what he says in 1 Corinthians is this, chapter 1. There's this discussion about baptism going on. Watch in verse 11. For it has been reported to uh, to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there's a rivalry among you. What 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 I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Peter, or I'm with Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And what Paul clearly does there is make a distinction between the gospel and baptism. Now, if baptism is an integral part of being saved and reconciled to God through the gospel, if it's in the gospel story in that sense, of being reconciled to God, then why in the world would the master evangelist thank God for not baptizing people? If it's about getting people saved through baptism, he would never say, I thank God I baptized none of you. And then he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now watch this. As Christians, what we're saying is this. We have to repent and believe to turn from sin to God, to trust in Christ to be reconciled to God. And when that happens... We have been joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. And now what do we do? Now we display it publicly. And so baptism for the Christian is something that is a necessary end result of already being reconciled to God. So if someone were to say to me, do I need to be baptized to be saved? I would say, um, faith in Christ is what saves you. Faith in Christ alone and his work alone. But if they said to me, Jeff, I trust in Christ don't want to get baptized. I would say, mm, probably not saved. What? I thought it's not part of salvation. If you've truly been saved, then you should want to be obedient to Christ's call to be baptized and want to identify yourself publicly with his death and resurrection. If you don't, it's suspect. But I say this. Is baptism is a part of the gospel? Well, what's the easy reference to go to? The thief on the cross. Man dies next to Jesus. He trusts in Christ. What does Jesus say to him? This day, you will be with me where? In paradise. He trusted in Christ and was saved. He didn't get off the cross to get in a bucket of water. No one was throwing water up at him, was sprinkling or whatever else they were doing in those times, right? He trusted in Christ and he was saved. That's the gospel. Faith in Christ saves alone. But for us who are believers, we get baptized. Baptism is a exclusively Christian thing started by John the Baptist. I don't think it maybe it existed in other religions before that. Who was Paul talking about when he well, said they? Yeah, interesting. Do this. Is, is uh, Christian baptism actually is distinct from John the Baptist's baptism of something that was even different? Um, and uh, and so the Christian form of baptism as a display of immersion into death and resurrection is is a particularly Christian thing, uh, even different than John the Baptist's. Um, 
But in the first century context, you have Paul dealing with uh, different segments of, of false teachers coming in and kind of corrupting the gospel and changing the message of the gospel. You had people denying that Christ has been raised. You have people uh, denying that uh, it's faith alone in Christ. It's also circumcision and also obedience to the laws of the ordinance of the gospel. So Paul's dealing with particular instances in those cases of different segments and groups who are denying resurrection. He's, he has to, the, the point is, is he has to say, why do they baptize for the dead if the dead do not rise? Um, did you, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just that um, it, with that particular passage as well, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians 15 starting in uh, 40. Um, an entire doctrine on the afterlife is built on that one verse about the heavenly bodies and the sun and the moon and the stars. And therefore you have now three separate entities by way of the afterlife. You have the telestial kingdom, terrestrial kingdom, celestial kingdom. And when you ask a Mormon, well, where do you base that off of? They will turn to 1 Corinthians fifteen forty. Now, is it, is it a challenging passage? It could be. What, what did Paul mean by that? We have to do some discovery work. But guys, hermeneutics, the study of the Bible 101 simply says this, let clear passages interpret unclear passages. In other words, there are some passages that are difficult to understand. Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we have to look at that and say, okay, is Peter claiming then that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, Peter says later in Acts chapter 10, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. Well, if baptism was so important to Peter, if it was, it was, a, if it was a principal factor in, in, in being saved, why wouldn't he mention it again in Acts chapter 10? Jesus says five times in John chapter 6, believe in the Son of God and you shall be saved. He doesn't mention baptism once. So you've got to let the clear passages interpret or help the unclear passages. So when we look at the afterlife, for instance, I look at all the passages that speak of one heaven, one hell, who goes to which... And I let those passages help me discover, well, what, Paul, what are you talking about here in verse 40? And, I, and it's only because if you look at all the commentaries on chapter 15, verse 40, you'll get three or four different theologians that have studied this way more than we have, their thoughts on it. And they may be in disagreement. But one thing that not, no theologian is disagreeing on would be a very clear passage, like John 3:16. Nobody disagrees on that passage. So I let the major passages inter- help interpret the minor passages. The, the elders, in the temple? The, 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 they're doing the, the baptisms for the dead? Correct. Oh, it's everyone. That's why they have a lot of genealogical institutions and work, because their goal is to baptize, ultimately. In the Mormon church, that's absolutely correct. They don't care where you were baptized if you weren't baptized. Then. And by the way, that work is done by Mormon teenagers that reach an age, okay, so you participate in that. So help us understand, so you would go to the temple on a Saturday or so? I'm speaking way more than I should. Um, no, actually, it was with my Boy Scout trip, oh, ironically, okay. which was interesting. Um, and it was the, one of the last things I did as a member of the Mormon church. Uh, my mom pulled us out about two months later. And um, it was the one time I can specifically remember feeling strange, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Um, they walk into, this is in the Mesa temple. You walk into a very fairly small room, cylindrical, 
um, very tall ceilings. Yeah. I remember there being ball heads, yeah. ceramic ball head sculptures on it's over the wall. It's a beautiful baptism. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, aesthetically. <laughs> say so. For me, it was very, maybe it was my age, maybe it was just, I just remember being extremely uncomfortable. And sure. I don't say this now, you know, 30 years later, I, I say I felt that way then. And of course, you go through the whole robing ceremony and stuff, going in and out. Um, my family's also actually sealed in the in the temple wow. several years before that. Um, yeah. So I relate to that too. But but the baptism for the dead is the one thing that um, sticks out in my mind as not feeling authentic. I guess um, just did not sit right with even a thirteen year old um, at that time. So um, yeah, that was definitely an interesting experience. Yep. Um, I was wondering why Joseph came up with and taught false prophecies if he knew they were false. Um, why? Yeah. Did, you, did I hear that right? Yeah. Is that what you said? Why? 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 Did he, well, again, that goes back to the original. That's a good question. The original thing I was saying is I can't um, interpret his his. Um, Pursuit. I don't really know his heart, but I can tell you what he did. And I can say what the Bible says about us. It says that all of us know God, but we end up suppressing the truth of God. And because we're rebels against the king, we go off into all kinds of things. We manifest our fallenness in a lot of ways. Some of us don't go off and become false prophets. Some of us don't go off and become false teachers. But we do exchange God for idols, and we do pursue darkness rather than the light. And so the nature of the case, all of us in here need... To be raised to newness of life, we need to be reconciled to God because apart from Christ, all we do is drink in darkness. And for Joseph, his particular pursuit was as a false prophet. He taught people a different God. He, he twisted the scriptures. He, ta- he gave false prophecies. And that's ultimately because Joseph, like us, are in Adam. It was in Adam. And everybody in Adam has fallen. Every, every one of us are sons and daughters of the same parents, <laughs> Adam and Eve, and we show it all the time. Um, but we're fallen, and sometimes that, that fallenness will manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And for Joseph, it was in false teaching and false prophecy. And uh, here's the thing. There really is no difference between Joseph and me, except for one word, grace. Joseph was fallen... And his pursuit was that direction. And if God had left my heart the way that it is, that it was, I would have gone the same direction. And the only reason any of us are in this room right now in love with Jesus is because he opened your eyes. That's the truth. Um, my question is about the other three books um, that accompany the Bible and the Mormon Church. The Book okay. of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, do they believe that these are extensions of the Bible that just oops were left out when it was bound together and made one book word of God? Um, and then two, since you've talked about the Pearl of Great Price being exposed in the sixties, how do they keep preaching it as truth and as part of the Bible with that public knowledge out there? That's a great, great question. Um, the, the Mormons will tell you that they believe in the four standard works, the Holy Bible, the book of Mormon. Doctrine of Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. Okay, that's the quad. And so if you will typically see a missionary come to your house, they're going to come to you with a fatty. <laughs> this. Okay, it's the quad. And on the back of it, you have all the, the works stated there. And they say the Bible is the word of God. Are you ready? Insofar that it is translated correctly. Translation, anywhere the Bible disagrees with the Book of Mormon, 
it's translated incorrectly. That's how it ends up working itself out. They believe the Bible's been corrupted over time, that it was basically uh, corrupted to the point that Joseph even had to give a, a new version of the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation, where he added a prophecy of himself in at the end of Genesis, um, which is interesting. Um, Holy Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. You ask the question, what are they? The Book of Mormon is uh, the thing where he said, I had translated from the Golden Plates into the Book of Mormon. He says that it was basically a story of the Hebrew people that came over to the Americas in the B.C. era. A lot of these documents come from. That's what the Book of Mormon purports to be. Uh, problem is that the Book of Mormon was supposed to be the most correct book of any book on earth when he gave the revelation, and that a man could get closer to God by obeying its precepts than any other book. It's changed about 4,000 times in less than 200 years. Major doctrinal changes, um, things taken out, there's been errors. Um, uh, this is a copy right here of the original 1830 version with all the changes marked. Um, and they're not just minor changes. Uh, also, there are historical inaccuracies. He quotes, um, he actually plagiarizes from the King James Version Bible, which is difficult because the King James Version Bible came about in 1611 in King James English. The Book of Mormon purports to be a record of people who were Hebrews in the B.C. era. And you have to ask the question, what are Hebrews doing in the B.C. era using King James English from 1611? That's a problem. It's, it does make sense when you consider the fact that the King James Version of the Bible was the most popular Bible translation of Joseph's day. Makes sense. Also, the fact that Joseph mentions things in the Book of Mormon that weren't in existence in the B.C. era. He didn't know that. He mentions glass, silk, and certain animals that weren't in that area. They were, in fact, in Joseph's time. Honeybees. He didn't know that. He slipped it in. Yep. Um, the next thing is, is the Doctrine of Covenants. The Doctrine of Covenants represents the teachings of the Mormon prophets and apostles. And so you have a lot of the teachings of what they taught. Doctrine of Covenants is considered a standard work. Uh, Doctrine of Covenants does teach, by the way, that polygamy is an eternal covenant, and that if you don't do it, you're damned. Brigham Young taught that the only men who become gods or the sons of God are those who enter into polygamy, which is why you have all these different sects of Mormonism, over a hundred different sects of Mormonism. They call the Utah church an apostate church. Why? Because Joseph and Brigham taught that only those who are polygamists become gods. And so when the Mormon church changed its mind after America threatened them and God changed his mind, now polygamy is no longer practiced, these, these splinter groups came off and they said, no, 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 no. Joseph said it's an eternal covenant. It's right there in D&C. You must be a polygamist. It's an eternal covenant. And if you disobey it, you're damned. That's why these other splinter groups. Uh, Pearl of Great Price is the revelation I already told you about. Pearl of Great Price, when that revelation came out, that Joseph didn't get a single word right in the translation, the Mormon church buried it. I have friends that said that they were around at this time, and they, they were like, what happened to it? Where, what happened? They just said they stopped talking about it. They, looked, they just stopped talking about it. That's what happened. From those that were there, they said, we were talking about it all the time. We can't wait for this to come out. What's going to happen? And they said they just stopped talking about it, and then they buried it. The only problem is, is that they buried it during the time when we had copies. So anybody can look at it. Now, I, I am. I want to tell you this right now. If you're in this room right now, I, my heart is so sensitive to this. I, I do not. I, and as a matter of fact, I warn Christians about this. I do not go to the temple with a copy of this work. I don't, I don't go out there and just start flapping the thing open going, look, he got every word wrong and, and look at this because I, have, I did that. I did it once and I will never do it again. 
And the reason why I won't do it again is not because I had anger. I saw a man fall to pieces. And it's not that I don't want someone to, to be in a place of repentance, but I hit this guy with something that didn't even give him a chance to hear who Jesus was. All he saw was his whole world collapse, and he left without me telling him about Christ. And I'm guilty for that. And so what I want to do is be careful with things like that, but just to answer your question, the Pearl of Great Price was essentially buried. And when people talk about it today, the Mormon church's answers are just, they're bad. They'll say, well, Joseph was seeing something spiritual behind the text. There's a problem with that. Joseph wrote in his journals and in diaries that they, today I finished the translation, and he wrote the letter and then his translation next to it. We have all these things. And so to say he saw something spiritual behind the text just doesn't work. Or they'll say, um, you don't have the whole papyrus. You're missing a piece. The problem is, again, he actually gave the symbols in the diaries and everything else, and he would give the counterpart of all, of all the letters that were there and all the words that were there. So that doesn't work either. And Egyptologists have examined this, and they've said that nothing is missing. This is the, the common pagan a funerary text. It's called the Book of the Dead or Book of Breathings. And uh, this is, it's all intact. This is what's there. Nothing is substantially missing. So with that, there's at least a story of the, of the quad. Um, and uh, we can go into more questions now, I guess. Anybody else? Two things. Could you explain why they believe that Lucifer is Jesus' brother yeah. and the different levels you can ascend to in heaven? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, why do Mormons believe that Lucifer and Jesus are brothers? Uh, let me start by saying not because of the Bible. <laughs> Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Bible says in John chapter 1, Greg said this, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You need to hear this because it is glorious, okay? The, in the Greek it says, anarche ein halagos. In the, the Greek that means in the beginning, as far back as you want to go, forever and ever and ever, with no point of stopping for eternity, Jesus was already there. And then it says, and the Word, Jesus was proston theon, toward God, face-to-face, an intimate relationship with the Father. And then it says, and Jesus was God, the Word was God. And it says that He created everything in existence and that nothing came into being that's come into being except through Him. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is eternally existent alongside the Father. Greg mentioned the Trinity. you got to love the Trinity, baby. I'm telling you right now, guys, you got to fall in love with the Trinity. Greg mentioned that a lot of Christians, we don't know our Bibles. Let me say this to you right now. you got to love what God says about Him as the Trinity. Read a book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White, and fall in love with what the Bible says about the Trinity. But Jesus, eternally existent, creator of all things. Why do Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers? Because in Mormon theology, Joseph taught that God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man with a body as tangible as man's, he says, if you were to see him today, you'd see him like a man, like yourself, in very form and everything else. And so Joseph says, we've imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I'll refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. You've got to learn to become gods yourselves the same way all gods have done before you. Now, in Mormonism, they believe that Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, is Heavenly Father. And they believe that Heavenly Father lives near a planet called Kolob. A star, a star named Kolob. And they believe that Heavenly Father progressed to becoming a god after first being a man on a planet much like this to his parents who were gods. And what happened is, is through the law of eternal progression, he went from being a man and through obedience to the principles and ordinances of the gospel, he became a god of his own planet. He had wives. He's a polygamist. He had wives in the preexistence. 
And the Mormon story is that in the pre-existence, this resurrected man who became a god, Elohim, and his polygamous wives had celestial sex and produced spirit offspring. That, those spirit offspring that includes us, you and I, and Jesus and Lucifer. And so in the Mormon story, Jesus is a creation, a spirit child of Elohim, and so is Lucifer. So in Mormonism, the Mormon story is that Lucifer and Jesus are brothers. And if you would ask me, if you would say, Jeff, why do they believe that? Why would they believe that? The answer, not from Scripture. This is the revelation of Mormon prophets and apostles. This is what they say about Christ. And so that's... That's the first part, is that that's, that's, that's what they believe, that's, that's what they're taught. And you had a second part of the question, though, you said. What's that? Oh, different levels of heaven. Greg brought up a good point. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions there are different um, glories, right? And what Paul is, is referring to in this text of 1 Corinthians 15 is that there's a different glory of the sun and a different glory of the moon, and there's a different kind of body that you have now, but it's not what it's going to be. And in that text... He, in, the, in the King James Version of the Bible, it talks about celestial bodies and then, let me write here, terrestrial. Telestial. Telestial. And what's amazing is the word terrestrial is not even in the text. But what they do is they go to the text and they say, look, celestial body versus t- uh, telestial body. Uh, and what happens is, is that becomes the proof text for different levels of heaven. But in 1 Corinthians 15, if you read the text... Nothing whatsoever to do with different levels of heaven. It literally has to do with the difference between the body that you have now and the body that you will have in the resurrection. Anybody reading 1 Corinthians 15 can see that. Nothing to do with levels of heaven. But what are the levels of heaven? You need to know this. What do they believe? You have the bottom level of heaven. And this level of heaven is basically for everybody. You'll be raised and basically good people go to the bottom level of heaven. The next level of heaven is for righteous Christians and Mormons. So if you're a good Christian, congratulations, you get to go to number two. Okay? That's the second level. Now, the third level is called the celestial kingdom. And the third level is where you work towards exaltation to becoming a god and goddess of your own planet one day. That's the three levels of heaven. What's the difference between that and scripture? For the Christian, heaven is not so much a place as it is a person. It's in the very presence of God. And for the Christian, it's not about what I gain in heaven in the sense of stuff and possessions and planets and things. For the Christian, all of eternity is about being reconciled to God and experiencing joy and pleasure in his presence forever. You know what John Piper says? He wrote a book, and this is John Piper's title of the book, and I love it. The title of the book is this, God is the Gospel. And you've got to think of how you would actually say that. What he means by that is God is the good news. You get God. And for the Christian, that's our story. I don't want to become a God of my own planet. He's the only God. I want Him. I want to know Him and I want to delight in Him and search Him out for all eternity. For me, the greatest gift is God and that I get God now and forever and eternal life. Peace with God is the gospel. For the Mormon, it's just a story of my righteousness and my good deeds and my works making me one day to become like the God of this earth did. And that's 
becoming a god of his own planet. That's the story. Yep, right here in the middle. Pastor Jeff, I just have a question um, just about the everyday. I have a friend that is a Mormon, and she has really come forth and told me a lot about Mormonism. But I'm the oldest one of the group of the people that I work with, and they also come to me as like a mom. So she is struggling because she's doing all these things. Like when we go to lunch, she'll justify having a Diet Coke. And I wish I, she wishes she could drink coffee. And I'm like, well, if I don't have coffee, I'm going to have a terrible headache in the morning. So she justifies all the things that I think are kind of, I don't want to say nonsense, but she's struggling so much with what you just said about the good works and the levels of heaven. Yeah. Um, for instance, she just told me that She's been dating different men, guys, and she's young. She's only 19, and she kissed every single, the five guys that she's been dating only one time, and she was so horrified by that. And I'm thinking, that's pretty normal in my opinion. I mean, I have a very good relationship with my 19-year-old that does come to Cornerstone when she's not away at college. So how do I help her? She, her self-esteem is kind of low because she can't talk with her mom about things. And she's coming to me, and I'm Christian. And where do I start with the scriptures to make it easy? Oh, that's it right there. That's the question right there. Because that's it. That is it. Is that the, the Mormon, you say, what's the big deal? Why are you doing this? Why, why would you care? Here's why. It's about peace with God. It's about reconciliation with God. Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And it doesn't mean rest like Christians don't do good deeds. No, we do good deeds now because we're indwelled with the Spirit of God and our hearts have changed. God is the one who's working in us to will and to do good for his good pleasure. So do Christians' lives transform and change? Necessarily so because they've been reconciled to God. But how do I get reconciled to God is the question. Watch this. Every religion of the world ultimately teaches this. God is good. We're not. How do you get back to him? Become righteous enough in yourself to get to God one day. So what do they say? Your good works and good deeds are loaded on the front end, and maybe someday you'll get through those good deeds and righteous acts to finally one day God accepts you and you're good with God. The Bible says, not going to happen. If righteousness comes to the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That's in Galatians chapter 2. It says in Romans chapter 4, to the working one, to the one who's working to be justified before God, to the one who's saying, okay, no coffee for me. Why? So I can be righteous before God. To that one, Paul says, what... They earn their wage is not considered as a gift, but as what is due. Paul, what he means there, you guys listen closer to this, guys. You'll have heard my whole heart for the evening if you understand this part of the message right now. This. Paul says, if you work for something, what you get for it is not a gift. You get a wage. Paul says, you go to a job, you work your 40 hours, you go in your boss's office, and he says, hey, good job. You did a great job making lots of money. You're doing fantastic. I have a gift for you. You're like, yes. Finally. And he goes, here's your gift. And you rip open the box. It smells like Christmas. You get inside and you pull out that envelope at the bottom and you rip it open and you see your paycheck. You would say, "Uh, thanks, (laughs) Uh, but you owe me this. I earned this. This is not gift. And what Paul says is to the one who's working, his wage, what he gets for it is not a gift, but what is due. But then Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What's the difference you need to share with your friend with love? The Bible says this, 
Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. And Romans chapter 3 very clearly says, very clearly says, Therefore, by the works of the law, there shall no flesh be declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And you need to show her, you need to say this. Have you ever broken God's laws? And she says, yes. You say, then you are guilty of all of the transgression of the law. And the Bible says, what will you do with your brokenness before God? God is holy. We're not. How do you receive a holy God? How does he receive you if you are sinful and you're fallen? Answer, God himself becomes man, lives a sinless and perfect and righteous life of obedience, and dies a death that I deserve, conquers that death by rising from the dead, so that if I turn from sin to fall on him and trust in him, the name of your church is what? cornerstone. He is that cornerstone that you fall on. Okay? And when you come to Christ and trust in Him, guess what? Gift is that you get His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And Paul says in Philippians 3, you can share this with her. Say, look at Paul's story. He's bragging on his experience. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He says, I count all these things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And what he says is this, and I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God through faith. That's the essence of the gospel. Show her that she has a choice. She could stand before a holy God with her mess and all of her brokenness and all of her unrighteousness and she will stand before a holy judge who misses nothing and she'll be condemned. Or she could stand before this holy God hiding in the righteousness of his son. And there's only one way there, through faith as a gift. And Paul says if you choose law, you're under the curse to fulfill all of it. Romans, that's Galatians chapter 3. I would take her to Romans 3, Romans 4, Galatians, the whole book. (laughs) The whole book. And then Philippians chapter 3. I would just keep showing her, look at our sin, look at how holy God is. You can have Christ and his righteousness. Okay, are you ready to go? So So I'll stay here all night, but we have men and women that are are running the sound and lights and and they're volunteering their time. And so I'm going to call it time. Is that okay? Can we thank Pastor Jeff? Thank Is you. that? Um, if you have more questions, or he'll be up here afterwards. And so thanks for coming, guys. Next week is Islam. Come on back for that. Thank you.